You are listening to Sheep Might Fly, a podcast of serialised fiction written and read by Tansy Rayner Roberts. Uh, recording once more in my library, uh, having thoroughly defeated it in battle over the last month. It's now mostly an empty room, which is probably not great for um, uh, for audio, <laughs> but it will over the next over the next few months become furnished and all lovely as an office space, which can also be a podcasting room. It has been suggested to me I need to be going into the walk-in wardrobe to record, but it's much better organised, but still full of things. I'm not going into a cupboard. So so here we are, a little background traffic noise, a little bit of branches scraping at the window, but definitely in an actual podcasting space with a closable door. I cannot express how nice it is to have a podcasting space with a closable door again instead of just trying to work my recording sessions around the impossible of everyone in my family being out or at least them being asleep at one end of the house and me sort of hunkering down in our living room. So yeah, this is definitely better. Okay, our current serial on the last three chapters now is Musketeer Space. Chapter 60. Judges, Jury and Executioners. Athos had taken part in countless duels over the years, against hammers and sabres, against new aristocrats drunk and sober, against his fellow musketeers. He had never fought a duel against himself. But my lord was not Athos, despite wearing a semblance of his face and body. My lord's fencing style, which had developed significantly since their days of casual sparring, was formal and vicious, valour from hilt to tip. He had not conducted a study of drunken Parisian back-alley brawls in between all his marriages, political machinations and espionage. His loss. Athos pressed his advantage, taking a fierce joy in being the comte in this moment and not the musketeer. His honour belonged to himself and not to the crown, and if that meant he was justified in using his free hand to seize anything within reach, a book, a cup, a vase he especially hated, and hurl it at his opponent, then so be it. Get out of my house, he growled. My lord, still wearing Athos's face, raised his eyebrows in a parody of sarcasm. Get out of my house, he replied sweetly. Athos battered the other man's blade out of his way and stepped in too close. This isn't a game. On the contrary, sweetness, breathed his husband. This is the best game we've ever played. Athos punched him in the face with a blood-stained fist. Of all the ways that Dana had imagined she might die... It was not at the hands of kitchen implements ordered to kill her by her best friend. She didn't know what half of these things did. But they were metal and plastic and whirring, and House was about to use them in ways that would make a genuine chef blanche. Dana backed up into a corner of the kitchen. The red mother's voice was soothing and reassuring, 
as she told House that the order must have been mistaken, that the real Comte de la Fere would not want his friend dead. House was audibly struggling against his programming. The Comte has two voices, he conceded. One of those voices is false, the Red Mother assured him. Mr. Auden is your master's enemy. He has stolen his grace's voice to trick you. Does not... That is not logical, House said, sounding genuinely distressed. Mr. Auden is family by marriage. I am to treat him as... I am to protect him as I... As I protect his grace. A buzzing, rotating knife blade twitched in the direction of Dana's throat. His grace has a new family now, she blurted out and looked at the Red Mother, worried she'd said something wrong. The priest nodded and smiled. His grace is now Athos the Musketeer, she said. He told you these are his friends, his personal guests. One does not murder personal guests, house. Dana heard a crash and a yell from further into the house. He's in trouble, house. Please let me help him. You can kill me later if you're really sure that's what he wants, but let me save him first. The buzzing kitchen implements hung in the air, considering. Dana didn't wait. She flew out to the main foyer where she found Porthos and Aramis battling with the staircase. Porthos was several steps up and Aramis behind her, but they were both stuck. This damned house keeps changing its mind about letting us pass the force fields, Porthos howled. He's confused, said Dana. She hesitated and ran up the stairs and passed them both. He's especially confused about me. She kept running until she found the third floor, following the sound of a fight. She had no idea which door led to the Iris Library, but she didn't have to find it, because Athos himself staggered out of a nearby door. He had blood smeared on his white shirt and across his battered face. No obvious damage. His grace has been injured. Dana, Athos said, his hand tightening on the hilt of what an, of an antique sword, not his usual pilot slice. We have to get out of here before he... Dana punched him in the face. He went down with a roar. Completely surprised by the force of her fist, and before he could get up again, she shot him with the bright gleam of her pearl stunner. Porthos and Aramis, who had either won an argument with House or benefited from the Red Mother's ability to talk sense into AI, came clattering up the last flight of stairs to join them. Dana, what did you do? Porthos yelped. Aramis gave the fallen Athos a brief once-over and moved past him into the library. Where's the real one? The room, which must have been beautiful once, was a wreck. Silk wall hangings were torn and blood-stained. Pieces of broken vase littered the floor. Books were scattered everywhere. The window was broken. Athos stood shakily in the middle of it, blood crusting over his hands and a ragged slash in his jacket sleeve showing a nasty cut. He only had eyes for Dana. How did you know that wasn't me? She shrugged. You're wearing a different shirt, holding a different sword, and you didn't call me D'Artagnan, so... 
He also got your beard slightly wrong, said Aramis, kissing him on the cheek that was not smeared with blood. It's a very distinctive beard. Porthos shrugged. I would have totally fallen for it. Can we get out of here? No offence, Athos, but your house is more unstable than you are. Not quite yet, said Athos, his bloody hands still grasping the hilt of his pilot slice. Slowly he walked past them all to the corridor, where the stunned milord still lay. He looked mostly like Athos, though his skin was a shade or two pinker, now Dana came to compare them. Athos with a mild sunburn. The real Athos leaned down, allowing the tip of his pilot slice to scrape against the throat of the unconscious alien. Dana realised what he meant by not quite yet. Athos, she said, barely able to find her words. We need him alive. I have to finish what I started, her friend said, colder than she had ever heard him. He looked broken. No, you don't, Porthos said, stepping forward. You can't go back to that, Athos. You've been blaming yourself for this death for too many years. The guilt was killing you even before he turned up like a bad credit check. You don't have to be judge, jury and executioner this time around. She's right, said Aramis, nudging Athos's arm. We're going to give him back to his own people. Let them take some responsibility for his bullshit. And hey, we'll stop a war at the same time. Everybody wins. Athos pressed the tip of his pilot slice a little more firmly into Milord's flesh, near the collarbone. What do you think, sweetness? Milord's eyes flickered slightly and opened. I'd rather you killed me than sent me home, he said. His words slurred from the stunner. Athos looked thoughtful. One of us should get to go home, he said after a long moment, and drew back his blade. Why not you? A sombre party stepped out of the house of the Dorterville family. Milord, his wrists and ankles hobbled by magnetic cuffs, had reverted to the face he knew best, young, silver-haired Auden. Dana noticed that Athos looked at Milord as little as possible, busying himself by soothing house and making some changes to the AI's menu of trusted family members. Special Agent Rosne Cho waited for them in the garden, surrounded by engies and darts. Athos had pulled down the security force field specifically to let her bring in the ships, and was remarkably unfazed by the resulting destruction of several flower beds. Roe was her usual snarky self. She had changed into a violet flight suit with matching boots. They're sending a royal transport to escort us back to the bastion, she reported. Finally, the powers that be have stopped underestimating our prisoner. Dana nodded. Are you all right? Roe hadn't been in good shape last time she saw her. Roe nodded stiffly. Your planchet hacked winter out of my brain. Dana blinked at that. She... I'm sorry, she what? Planchet bobbed up out of the buttercup, pleased as punch. It's not so much a drug as a micro stud that burrows into the brainstem. 
Once I figured that, it was easy enough to hack into the right frequency and deactivate the winter program from having control over or ability to communicate with his victims. I've sent the instructions to the Countess of Claric so they can free Marshal Felton. The stud keeps a record of all activity under protective passwords so it can serve as evidence in court. Dana stared at Planchet, impressed. Yeah, you're really not paying her enough. Rose said in a tone that made it clear she wanted to change the subject. How are things here? Emotionally devastating. Sounds about right. Dana cleared her throat, feeling awkward. Look, I'm really sorry that I thought, I mean, that I assumed... What? That I was on my lord's side after the whole murder at the convent thing? Rose said easily. Don't sweat it, Buttercup. I've been underestimated by better people than you. Thanks. I think. An unreadable expression crossed Rose's face, and she punched Dana's shoulder lightly. Sorry about your boy. Dana swallowed, feeling sad all over again. Yeah, me too. The ship that arrived to escort them back to Truth Space, and to the sun-kissed delegation awaiting delivery of their prisoner, was an Eagle-class venturer. The Star's Divine, which Aramis knew belonged to the Cardinal herself. It had a gold veneer with starfield tattoos on the fin, and the interior was lushly designed with red and gold in every cabin. It was beyond extravagant, but no one was complaining. There was room in the hold for all of the darts, sabres and moths belonging to their group. Once the ship's prisoner and passengers were loaded on board... There was nothing for any of them to do. Like any decent pilot, Aramis hated being a passenger. It sucked. Normally she might occupy herself with books and poetry or finding a fleetnet forum in which to spark off a theological debate or two. She was feeling uninspired right now. They were on limited comms and besides, she had friends to keep an eye on. There was a fully stocked bar on board the Star's Divine, in which Dana had taken up near-permanent residence, drinking steadily through her heartbreak. It was often Rosne Cho keeping her company, though Aramis, Porthos and Athos all hovered around Dana as well, making sure there was always at least one of them nearby. It occurred to Aramis that for all the watching of Dana that they were doing, they should be keeping a close eye on Athos too. He was working hard to act as if nothing of any importance had occurred. On the third day, not long before they were due to arrive at the Bastion, Aramis cornered Athos in the bar. He sat some distance from the others, who were holding an elaborate cocktail naming contest. You're sober, Aramis noted. Also... You're due for another haircut. Maybe I'll let it grow out again. Liar. Athos gave a short huff of a laugh, but his eyes were distant as he glanced at Dana, then back to his own drink, a large mug of black coffee. If I start drinking now, I won't stop. Maybe when I'm not sharing a ship with him. My lord was locked in a cell in the heart of the ship, guarded by a heavy rotation of hammers, sabres and musketeers. 
Aramis knew she wasn't the only one who slipped down there occasionally to check he had not escaped. What do you think they're going to do to him? she asked. His own people, I mean. From what Treville told us, they consider him a traitor and a murderer, Athos shrugged. But they're aliens. For all we know, their highest punishment is a cuddle and a slice of birthday cake. Aramis slid a look over at Dana, who leaned miserably into Porthos, trying not to make it obvious that she was crying. Rosne Cho was pretending that she hadn't noticed, ordering more drinks. I want to tear the bastard limb from limb, Aramis whispered. Athos saluted her with his coffee cup. Welcome to the club. But you and Porthos were right. I got to be judge, jury and executioner before, and that was hell. Time to try something new. Aramis gave him a hug and slipped behind the bar to pour herself a drink. Champagne, she thought. All the better to toast the downfall of their enemies. When was the last time you were sober in a bar? Far beyond recorded memory, Athos said solemnly. Do they usually smell this bad? Aramis wrinkled her nose. That's the carpet. This ship must have been in mothballs for years. It's too fancy for every day. Aramis poured herself a glass of bubbles from a suitably labelled flask and clinked the glass against Athos's cup. Time to change the subject so hard that there was no going back. At least we get to skip the drunken confessions part of the evening. That was getting old. He gave her an odd look. What exactly do you have to confess? Not me. You. She waited until he had a mouthful of coffee before explaining. You know, the drunken conversation we keep having, where you beg my forgiveness for sleeping with Chevreuse two days after she and I broke up. To his credit... Athos did not spit out the coffee, but it took quite the effort for him to swallow. What the hell, Aramis? She laughed at him. You're so cute when you're guilt-ridden. I wasn't aware that was a conversation I had allowed to exist outside my own head. Six times, Athos, she told him firmly, since Joyeux. For what it's worth, I forgave you five times out of the six. Athos nodded, looking as if a weight had been taken off his shoulders. It was really quite endearing. Good to know. Aramis tapped him on the nose with the cool edge of her champagne glass. Not everything has to be a melodrama or a tragedy. Athos had thought he was prepared for this. He had made so many sensible life choices all week. He gave House a more appropriate lockdown procedure when they left Valor, and he fully intended to make proper arrangements for the manor and the estate. He had remained a sober companion for D'Artagnan, as she worked through her grief and guilt about the boy that Orton had murdered in order to hurt her. Athos had even composed a sensible report for Admiral Treville on the grounds that it was nearly her birthday and he liked to surprise her now and then. He trusted his friends to regularly check on the prisoner so that he did not have to, 
because he was content never speaking another word to that man. Really, Athos was proud of how well he had handled everything. They were twelve hours away from Truth Space and the Bastion when the aliens arrived. Athos was on the flight deck because his friends were drunk and maudlin, and he only got to be one of those things. He hated travelling through space as a passenger. All decent musketeers felt the same way. But it was easier when standing up here at the business end, watching the stars through the viewscreen. The Ventura flight crew were sabres, politely pretending he didn't exist and that none of them had fought duels with him in the last six months. A comfortable falsehood. "'What the hell's that?' uttered Captain Tybalt, a sentence no one ever wants to hear from their pilot. Athos looked at the blaze of brightness that streaked across their viewscreen. "'That's not good,' he managed, before the blaze became too fierce to look at directly. "'Fuck, it's the sun-kissed.' "'They're not shooting!' shouted Magellan, the co-pilot, but that wasn't as comforting as it might have been. "'I don't think they have to shoot at us to destroy this ship,' said Athos. He was already running, slapping his comm stud as he went, opening a frequency that alerted everyone on their original extraction team. Not just Aramis, Porthos and D'Artagnan, but Cho, L'Etoile and Ducasse too. "'Get to the prisoner hold now. Ambush!' When he reached the corridor outside the hold where my lord was imprisoned, Athos saw the first bodies. Two unconscious hammers sprawled out by the door. Aramis and Porthos, their eyes watering from the rapid effect of sobriety patches, reached him around the same time. Both drew their stunners, allowing Athos to take point. Inside the hold, four more guards lay unconscious or dead on the ground. At the far end... My lord sat on a bench, electro-cuffed to the wall, and surrounded by a force field, alert and awake, still wearing the face and body and bright silver hair of Auden Dorteville. The Red Mother, who had insisted on travelling with them for my lord's trial, stood facing down six figures with bright red skin, light pouring out of their eyes and mouth. This is Athos the musketeer, she said gravely. He was one of the victims of the prisoner. The six sun-kissed delegates turned their bright faces to Athos, and he did his best not to cower under their fierce intensity. Friends, he said, in the calm diplomatic tone he had learned from his father long before he was old enough to use it. Do we have a problem here? One of the six aliens opened her mouth, and a garble of light and sound poured out. She stopped, tilted her head, and allowed another of her companions to step forward. "'Our lost child is to be collected,' that one said in a high-pitched tone. "'It was an agreement with your people.' Special Agent Rosne Cho shoved her way into the cell, with L'Etoile and Ducasse, she stood beside Athos with a look of grim determination on her face. "'We are charged with delivering the criminal to the Cardinal and the Regents,' she said. "'They are the ones who made the agreement with you.' All six sun-kissed, tilted their heads back and forth, as if trying to make sense of her words. 
The cardinal is irrelevant, said one. The regents is irrelevant, said another. Our lost child is to be collected, said the original speaker. Will there be a trial? put in a belligerent voice, D'Artagnan, of course. Will he face judgment for his crimes? Will he be punished? Milord began to laugh, a harsh and angry sound. Oh, sweetness, he said, pretending to wipe tears from his eyes. You're precious. Don't ever change. Our orders are clear, said Special Agent Cho, holding firm. You are irrelevant, said the main speaker. Light poured into the room, too intense for Athos to do anything, but squeeze his eyes shut. When he opened them, Rosne Cho, L'Etoile, Ducasse, Aramis and Porthos all lay in a crumpled heap on the floor. D'Artagnan crouched over Aramis, checking her pulse. She nodded sharply, her eyes wide and startled. Not dead, then, Athos breathed out. What do you want? he asked. Since it was obvious the aliens could do anything, they damn well pleased. Our lost child is to be collected, the sun-kissed speaker said, unruffled. Take him, then, said Athos. Be our guest. I can't emphasise enough how little we care about his fate. D'Artagnan made a small noise of protest in her throat. Athos rolled his eyes at her. Do you imagine we have a choice here? The Red Mother addressed the sun-kissed delegation again. As the prisoner's religious adviser, I wish to accompany him to your world, to ensure he is treated fairly. As one, the sick sun-kissed turned expressions on her that could only be described as universal sarcasm. Irrelevant, said one, and the Red Mother dropped to the ground in a dead faint. Marvellous! purred my lord. My two greatest offenders are all that remain. I feel so blessed. Burn in hell, D'Artagnan shot at him. Meet me there, my lord snapped back, but it was Athos he looked at, with a sad smile on his face. No final words, sweetness? Go in peace, Athos breathed, and he meant it. He could not think about vengeance, not now. A fierce bright light filled the room, dissolving the heavy cuffs on the prisoner's wrists and ankles, deactivating the force field. For the first time, my lord looked afraid, pressing himself back against the wall. I did my duty, he protested. I did exactly what you sent me here to do. I gathered intelligence. I insinuated myself into a position of value in their society. I came this close to bringing down their government. I never stopped working for you. The main speaker of the sun-kissed delegates reached out a crimson hand and touched his face. Light blazed out. There were images and sounds captured in that intense burning light. Athos saw a ship crash saw the shapeless creatures that emerged, and saw one die at the hands of another. He saw Auden return to a glowing beacon in the snow year after year, and he saw him broken and angry destroying that beacon. 
Was this a trial? Did this count as evidence? Or was it an interrogation? Were those crimes enough to make an entire race turn against my lord, to wage a war in order to take him back? Or had that always been an excuse? An excuse to invade or an excuse to end the war? The light burned harder. My lord cried out in pain, in terror. Athos thought he'd been willing to be the executioner again if there was no other. Now, as he realised what was happening, his whole body reacted against it. Arms wrapped around his shoulders, hands pressed into his mouth, holding him back. In the brightness, he heard a howling cry of protest that, in retrospect, must have come from him. It must have been D'Artagnan who tackled him to the floor, kept him from hurling himself into the light. Milord Vaniel de Winter, also known as Sister Snow, and Linton Grey, and Slate, and Auden Dorterville, and a dozen other names, dissolved in a burning ball of light that hurt the eyes. The sun-kissed delegation bowed their heads, made a chattering sound that Athos did not understand, and vanished one by one, leaving two conscious humans, and many unconscious humans, alone in the hold. Athos breathed in the scent of Dana's uniform and skin, because any distraction was better than thinking about what had just happened. He coughed, and D'Artagnan released him. Fucking aliens, she said, with a shaky laugh. Laughing was as bad as drinking. Once he started, Athos was sure he would never stop. He bit the inside of his mouth and said, It's done. How does vengeance taste? D'Artagnan gave him a quick, worried look. Unsatisfying, she ventured. Sounds about right. Athos looked around at their many unconscious colleagues. We are going to get the blame for this, aren't we? Oh, yeah. Big time. Thanks for listening to Sheep Might Fly. This podcast was recorded on Palawar land. I acknowledge and pay respect to the Tasmanian Aboriginal people as the traditional owners and continuing custodians of Lutruwita, Tasmania. Sheep Might Fly is produced and edited by Andrew Finch. You can sign up to my author newsletter for updates. Follow me on Twitter at TansyRR. And if you like this podcast, consider supporting me at Patreon, where you can receive all kinds of bonus rewards, early ebooks, and exclusive stories for a small monthly pledge. See you next week.